And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our life is shaped by what questions we ask and how we answer them. For example, will you marry me? It's a pretty important question. And how one answers it shapes the rest of your life. How do you plead? Another important question, right? Depending on how you answer it in court, may change your life. What's for dinner? It's a frequent question. And maybe it doesn't change your life, but it does shape your life in some way. Who shot JR? Uh, who's the real Slim Shady? Where is Waldo? Where are my car keys? Got milk? I've tried to cover all the generations. I don't know how well I did, but I... I try to cover everybody. We all are asking certain questions in life, and we're answering them, or maybe refusing to answer them, but those questions and answers to them shape our lives. And Mark has spent eight chapters of his gospel sort of circling and dancing around this one question, and really he waits until now, until our passage this morning, to answer it. The rest of Mark is going to be an explanation of that answer. So if you think about the Gospel of Mark, it's really easy to divide it into two parts. You have the first eight chapters are all asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Then we get our answer. 
here, it's immediately misunderstood, right? And then the rest of the gospel is Jesus explaining and through acts and words, speaking plainly now, his identity as the Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want to ask and answer that question, who is Jesus? And of course, as we answer that question, when we see that right in our text, as we answer the question, we also see how it answers another very important question. And that question is, who am I? Who am I? So we go from who is Jesus, and the order is very important, who is Jesus to who am I? And I am convinced you can't really truly answer the second question without answering the first. So who is Jesus? Just two points today if you're, if you're taking notes. Two questions. Who is Jesus? Look with me at verse 27. Jesus asks his disciples, these are the people who are traveling with him, his followers, he sort of casually asks them, of course, he's got a greater purpose, he's going to lead them to this answer, but he asks them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And of course, lots of opinions, right? And they reduce it to these three, which we've already seen in Mark 6, these three theories of how to explain what Jesus says and does. Some say you are John the Baptist. Others think you are Elijah. And others think you are one of the prophets. Now, these are the three main explanations of who Jesus is. And they're all false. They're all false. So all these people around Jesus who see him perform miracles, who hear him teach, they all have false ideas of who he really is. Jesus is not a reincarnated John the Baptist who had been beheaded by King Herod. Nor is Jesus Elijah. Now, people thought because Elijah was kind of taken up into heaven, he didn't really die, God just kind of took him up, then he was going to come back the same way and finish his, his ministry of, of ridding Israel of idols. That's not Jesus. Nor is he just a prophet like one of the prophets from the Old Testament. He's more than that. Now, all three theories, notice that all three theories are projecting people's expectations their ideas onto Jesus. They're seeing Jesus, they're hearing Jesus, they know what Jesus does, what he says, and then they're interpreting what he does and says through their own ideas, through their own expectations. They say, Jesus must be John the Baptist. He must be one of the prophets. He must be Elijah, because that fits into their expectations and their ideas. They start with something familiar, now, everybody in Israel knows about Elijah. Everybody knows his story. At this point, everybody heard John the Baptist preach. Everybody knew this crazy prophet who baptized people, right, and, and called out the religious authorities, and even King Herod himself. Everybody knows him. Well, Jesus must be like him, or must be him. Everybody's read the prophets. So Jesus, maybe he's one of the prophets. So they start with something familiar, and then they use it to define Jesus. And if you consider what most people think of Jesus today, you will find exactly the same pattern. We are not at all far from this text today. Because there's human sinful psychology that kicks in. We take something familiar, we take something that's important to us, and then we view Jesus as a representation of that. We just want to fit him into our framework, our ideas, our desires. 
And so we meet Jesus and we say, well, he must be like that. He must fit into this idea, this expectation. Now, we have different expectations, of course. And that's why we have many Jesuses, right? We have many Jesuses. You talk to enough people, you realize everybody's got their own idea of who Jesus is, what he's like. Many people have this idea of Jesus as the sweet but helpless baby of the nativity scene, right? has very little influence on your life, but you like the sentimentality of it. You like the, the aesthetics of that. There's Jesus, the wise but misunderstood moral teacher. He came to do something good, but we really didn't get his message. There's Jesus, the champion of American values, right? That fits very neatly into a political ideology. Figure that, right? How does he do that? Well, we're projecting. Of course we're projecting on him. There's Jesus, the victim of injustice. Now, all of a sudden, he, he seems to fit very neatly into our longings, our desires, and our experiences and our wounds. There's Jesus, the hippie, right? You all know that Jesus, right? There's the white Jesus, blue-eyed, blonde Jesus. How did we get there? Because he looks like us, right? We just got a person like us. There's the black Jesus, too. How do we get, I mean, do you see how we're taking something that's familiar to us? And then we're saying, well, Jesus must be like that. He must be like that. But that is not the way to understand the real Jesus. This is what Mark is just forcing us to, throughout these chapters, he's forcing us to see Jesus as Jesus reveals himself to us. Which is, of course, is that's the real Jesus. is who Jesus is as he says and what he does as he himself presents himself to us. Now, in verse 29, Jesus makes that same question very personal, and he's addressing his disciples now, and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You, you heard all these different theories, and people are projecting all these different ideas onto Jesus, but what do you think? Now, I think the context of this is they've been with Jesus for some time now. They've been close to him. Now, everybody heard Jesus' parables, but only a few people heard Jesus explain the parables, right? So the disciples were on the inside. They heard Jesus explain things to them. They saw Jesus perform miracles that other people didn't see. They saw how things really happened on the, on the inside, in the background. And so you would think, right, that these are the right people. They should know who Jesus is. So Jesus answered that question, answered the question, who I am, based on what you have seen and heard from me. Who am I really? And Peter says, of course it's Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And Peter's confession is accurate. He's right. He's right. Because they saw the miracles, they, they, they've interpreted the prophecies, they've heard Jesus' teachings, they were close to him, and they know that if anything fits this person, it has to be the Christ. It has to be the Messiah. Now, Christ is just a Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, which comes from this idea of being anointed, oil being poured on you in, in ordination to priesthood or in, in ascension to the throne. It's a royal title. It's this, this king priest that has promised to come and save his people. And Peter identifies Jesus as that promised divine king coming to save his people. He's not just another prophet. He's the prophet. Not just another leader. He's the leader. 
Everyone's been waiting for him. And Peter says, on behalf of all the disciples, they all agree, you are the Christ. Now, let me read you a few lines further. This is where this triumphant moment, right? (laughs) Peter got it right, quickly changes. Now, I want you to, I'm going to read the next few lines to you. Disregard section divisions and verse divisions, if you can, okay? And by the way, you can buy a Bible that doesn't have section and verse divisions, and sometimes it's really helpful to see how it flows, because I think there are connections between verses that are are separated. So let me just read it to you. Just listen. So this is after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and then it says, and he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said it, said this plainly. Now, if you take that whole section and put it together, you see the connection between Jesus telling them not to tell anybody about it and then explaining what they're supposed to tell about it and saying, and saying it plainly. You kind of, if you put it all together, you actually see what's happening here, which is there is a true confession, but it's incomplete. Peter doesn't really understand what the Christ means. He knows Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't quite know what that means. So Jesus says, don't talk to anybody just yet. Let me tell you. And from that point on, Jesus begins to talk about his death and his resurrection. And he now speaks plainly. It's not parables anymore. Is actually speaking plainly about the cross and the resurrection because the kind of Christ he is, the kind of Messiah he is, involves the cross and the resurrection. And he wants his disciples to wait to talk to others about him so they don't misrepresent him. Now, they're, they're exactly at this point in the book of Mark, the narrative shifts. You remember that until now, Jesus has been forbidding almost everybody, people and demons, to spread the news about him. Remember, Jesus is very careful. Healing happens. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Why? Because he doesn't want people reading their own ideas into who he is. He wants to define himself. This is what the scholars call the messianic secret. He's keeping his messianic identity, his identity as the Christ, as the Messiah's secret, and he doesn't want it spreading in a false way. And here, when Peter finally confesses that he is the Christ, that's right, but now Jesus is going to explain what it means, and then they can talk to people. Once they understand, then they can talk to people. And by the way, they don't understand, right? Right away, you see that though Peter confesses him to be the Christ, he doesn't quite know what the Christ means. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, before you go telling others that I am the Christ, let me explain what it means. I must suffer and be killed and rise again. This is the essence of my royal identity. My throne is the cross. You cannot understand who I am unless you see me as a crucified king. You are the Christ. What kind of Christ? The crucified Christ. The risen Christ. The Christ who came to suffer. 
the Christ who came to be rejected and to be killed. This is the kind of king he is. And only through the cross and the resurrection can the disciples finally understand what the Christ means. Now we see why Jesus has been so careful to explain who he is, why he's been forbidding people to talk about him, while, while he is working so closely with his disciples. Because Peter, who had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't accept that the Messiah must die. Peter, who confesses Jesus as the Christ, doesn't understand that the cross is part of his royal identity. And so he takes Jesus aside. I don't know if he cares about Jesus being embarrassed. I don't know if he's trying to be gentle with Jesus. But he takes him aside, and Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, please see how Peter's ideas... His own familiar ideas of what the Messiah is supposed to be now are projected onto Jesus. Now here's Jesus. He's the Christ. Peter confessed it. Jesus admitted it. And then Jesus talks about him being rejected and killed by the high priest and by the elders and by the teachers of the law. What is happening here? And Peter says, this is not the way to talk about the Messiah. Don't give in to this defeatist attitude, Jesus. Don't become a victim. And so he takes him aside and he rebukes him. This is a strong word here. He rebukes Jesus because Jesus' identity, as Jesus himself presented, doesn't align with what Peter thinks Jesus should be. And so he does what all of us do, rebuke Jesus and say, you, that's not what you're supposed to be like. You don't fit into my expectations. And look at what Jesus does in response. His reaction is swift. It is strong. And because you see the context of Jesus' concern to present himself in his true royal identity, you know, you know what's at stake here. You see why he's so strongly and swiftly responding to Peter. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. How would you like Jesus to talk to you like that? Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This reaction makes perfect sense if you understand that Jesus is concerned with his disciples getting his identity right. And Peter, who just confessed him as the Christ, is reverting to human ideas. His own expectations of the Messiah's victory. Now, what is he thinking? He's thinking, Jesus is coming. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's going to take the throne in Jerusalem. Rome is going to get defeated. That's what Peter's thinking. That's what a lot of people in Israel are thinking at the time. Suffering, rejection, and death just don't fit into that paradigm. And so Peter is rejecting the divinely revealed identity of the Messiah. As Jesus himself explained who he is, he says, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed. And Peter says, no, no, that doesn't fit. So he's rejecting the divinely, uh, divine revelation, and he is embracing his own human ideas. Now, do you see the juxtaposition of the two? Understanding Jesus based on familiar human ideas 
versus understanding Jesus based on his own revelation, based on his self-revelation. That, that's the choice. The Christ who came to liberate his people from political oppression by leading a violent rebellion against Rome makes perfect sense to Peter. The Christ who came to liberate his people from their sins by being rejected by the religious Jews and crucified by Rome requires Peter to set aside his own ideas and to accept Jesus on his own terms. And that's hard. That's really hard. The stakes are high. Peter can either believe God or, according to Jesus, he can believe Satan. Peter's rebuke of Jesus is satanic in nature. This is Satan trying to take away the word, like in the parable of the sower. Remember, the birds come and the birds just pluck it away and take away the word before it takes, takes root. And so here's Jesus saying, I, I must suffer, I must die. And Peter right away takes him aside and rebukes him. This is, this is Satan, right? This is Satan trying to take the word away, trying to take truth away. This is Satan attempting to redefine Jesus' mission, just as he did in the wilderness. I mean, remember, Jesus was fasting, and he's being tempted by Satan. Satan's using scripture. He's using familiar ideas, right? And he's saying, why don't you be like that? Why don't you be a Messiah like that? Why do you need to fast? Why do you need to suffer? Just take the kingdom. Here it is. But Jesus does not accept any other identity from people, from demons, from Satan himself. He stays true to who he is. And he reveals it to us. And the challenge is, will you accept Jesus on his own terms? Now Jesus revealed himself as one who came to die for his people, to redeem them from their sins by shedding his blood for their sins. Only God could have designed such a deliverance. You know, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you're, you're, you got these things of man that you're believing, not things of God. You set your mind on human things, not on divine things. What he's saying is, if you understand who I am properly, you will know that it can only come from God, that this idea of deliverance through death, through the cross, through becoming a victim. Only God can do that. Only God could have designed this kind of salvation for us. God absorbing divine wrath in the place of sinners he loves. What human being would ever come up with this? This doesn't fit into any human expectations. Nobody was expecting God to do that, to do the cross and the resurrection. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. And only Jesus, only he can be this kind of Christ, this kind of king. Now, any other idea of Jesus that doesn't include the cross is ultimately, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a falsehood. And Satan is all too happy for us to embrace redemption without the cross. The Christ without the bloody humiliating, scandalous death. I am so glad we sang the fountain filled with blood today. Of course, I didn't make the connection when I saw the order of worship, but I, I, I made it now. This is a perfect song because it's offensive, isn't it? 
I mean, don't you cringe a little bit when you sing it? Is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins? I mean, it's very graphic. But this is exactly the essence of the gospel, isn't it? This is Jesus saying, this is what I came to do. I came to die, and it's bloody. It's scandalous. It's, it's embarrassing. It's offensive. It's supposed to be this way. Because this is the kind of king he is. Because this is what it takes to save us. He had to go through that. He, he said, I must suffer. There's a divine necessity here. I must suffer for you. That's right. Does Jesus fit into any of your categories? Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, that's the question, right? When you read this passage, you have to apply it to yourself. You have to ask yourself, does it fit into any of my familiar preconceived notions and expectations? Or does Jesus break my categories and create, creates new ones? This is the most important question for us to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? Will you take him on his terms and try to understand and leave your, your expectations aside and try to understand him as he is? Or will you try to force him into one of your familiar categories? I think that's what separates believers from unbelievers ultimately. Now, this is one of the, our passage is one of the three major predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. This is where he starts, starts to speak plainly and he now predicts his suffering. He predicts his, his crucifixion. What's interesting is that each prediction is followed by teaching on discipleship. So Jesus says, I'm going to go and die. I'm going to rise again. Now let me tell you what it means to follow me. Now, why is he connecting these every time? He's connecting those two things together. I think the reason is, is because getting the identity of Jesus right allows us to answer the next very important question. Who am I? Once you answer the question, who Jesus is, then you can start answering the question, who am I? How does it affect me? How does it affect my identity? Now look at verse 34. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Just as we must reject all our ideas about Jesus and accept him on his terms, turns out we must also reject all our ideas about us, about me, and define our identity on his terms too. It's not just getting who he is that has to be done on his terms. It's getting who I am has to be done on his terms as well. Now, this is what Jesus means by denying yourself. He's saying, don't try to define yourself on your own. Instead, take up your cross and follow me. He's saying, let me define who you are. Find your identity in me. See yourself as I see you, Jesus says. Build your identity as a follower of Christ, the real Christ, as Christ himself has presented himself to us. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? Now, I'm going to disappoint you that taking up your cross does not involve suffering with seasonal allergies. It's not what Jesus is talking about. 
It doesn't include car troubles. I mean, I know these are common applications of this verse, but that's not what Jesus means. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, take up your cross, it doesn't even mean suffering as such, really. It means that you are now following him who is crucified, and your life now will reflect him. You're actually now going to live according to the pattern of Christ. Now, does it involve suffering? Of course. He's the suffering servant, of course. As you follow him, you're going to suffer because he suffers. But picking up your cross and following him means actually just being like him and conforming your identity to his idea of who you are. The call is to conform your life to the pattern of Jesus. Your identity must be shaped by your relationship with the crucified Jesus. To really know who we are, we must embrace a cruciform identity. A cruciform identity. Meaning that your life has to be shaped by the cross of Christ. So it's not just that Jesus calls us to suffer. Of course he does that. It's not just that he calls us to to be persecuted for his name. Yes, he's going to talk about that. But there's a bigger thing here. He calls us to follow him as he really is, which includes suffering. It also includes victory. But he wants us to conform to his pattern. Our identity needs to become cruciform. Now, every life... Every identity has a shape to it. You may know exactly what your life is shaped by, or you may, it just may happen subconsciously, you may not know it. But every life is shaped, is defined by something. There there are really no kind of these formless lives. You know, there's something that's driving you, there's something that's shaping you. There's a number of options here. Could be a person, right? Could be people, could be your parents. Could be your spouse, could be your children, could be a friend. A person that really has shaped you. And you live according to that pattern that they gave you or they are giving you or that you're hoping they would give you. It can be something like safety or freedom, right? Some value like that where you you make decisions to be safe. If you think about your life, as you you make decisions at work or, or at home... What's the goal? What are you really afraid of? And a lot of people live for safety. A lot of people live for comfort. A lot of people live for freedom. And so they make decisions that, that, that give them the best opportunity to have as much influence, as much freedom, as much autonomy as they can get. It could be more pedestrian things like money or pleasure, right? You can live for money. Sure, lots of people do. You can live for pleasure. It doesn't have to be great pleasure. Just some pleasure. Of course, it could also be a moral or cultural or religious code. Lots of people's lives are defined by very rigid expectations of their faith or of their culture. It can be grievance or trauma. Your life can, can be well be shaped by something that happened to you a long time ago or something that happened to a group of people that you belong to. And so now you live out of that. Your life is shaped by that. What's the pattern of your life? It's grievance. It's trauma. But your life has a certain shape. 
question is, do you know what it is? And many of us don't. Now, I'll, I'll make a sharp turn here, and I'll explain why I'm doing this, okay? I grew up in the late 80s, 90s, and there were two names in cinema that me and my peers cared about. Arnold and Sly Stallone. Those were the only two. If you come from that era, you understand exactly what I mean. If you don't come from that era, just humor us, okay? That's how we lived. Now, we got all those movies a little bit later in Ukraine, but we got them all. And I remember very much, I mean, if you wanted to go see a movie, it's going to be either an Arnold movie or it was going to be a Stallone movie. And you know that they were competing, right? The next movie comes out, Sly is going to kill more people than Arnold in the previous movie. <laughs> Surprisingly, not really, two documentaries are on Netflix, one about Arnold, one about Sly Stallone. Coincidence? I, I think not. I think, <laughs> I think they're still competing with each other. <laughs> Who can be the most vulnerable? Who could be the most honest in their documentary? So, of course, I watched. I watched both, of course, <laughs> right away. Uh, so I watched Sly, the documentary about uh, Sylvester Stallone. And, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that got left out. I don't know how honest he really was. Okay, so just give me that, right? Give me that. But as you watch it, the theme that runs through the documentary is that Stallone's life is shaped very much by, by the neglect and the rejection of his family early in life, and then his quest to find recognition. Now, if you watch his movies, his, his better movies, right? He's really got two. He's got Rocky and, and he's got Rambo. Those, those are the, the two. I mean, those are the 12 movies you need to watch. <laughs> to understand. But as, it's the same story, isn't it? It's somebody who was not given a chance early on, somebody who was rejected, somebody who was pushed to the margin, somebody who didn't get the love and acceptance either of his society or of his family or of his neighborhood, whatever. And this is a person that's just out to prove that he's worth something, anything. In the documentary, Stallone says that in his art, in his movies... He tried to make things the way he wished things would be. I think, I think he's honest there. He's saying, I wished I had a father like Rocky had a father. I think this is very insightful. And you can see how the stories that he told, in fact, were all about that. And in fact, the stories that resonated the most with people were stories of rejected people pushed to, to, to the margin, seeking recognition and acceptance and love. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a lonely place for an artist, but that is a story that resonates with many of us. Those movies are popular not so much because it's a great boxing movie. Rocky is not a great boxing movie, but it's a great human movie, right? He's saying, I just, I just want to prove I'm not a bum. That's his goal in fighting Creed. You don't need to know as much about Rocky movies as I do. But, but the story is a human story that resonates with us. Why? Because many of our lives are shaped by the rejection of our fathers, especially from men. Many of our lives are, are shaped by that search for recognition. I just, I just want to find somebody who thinks I'm not a bum. As Rocky says, I just want to go the distance. I don't even need to win, he says. I just want to go the distance. Who is, he, who is he proving 
what, I mean, like, think about it. He's not trying to prove anything to, to creed. I mean, he's trying, you know, he's, he's trying to prove something to himself. Because his life is shaped by the search for recognition and ultimately love. Now, what's the shape of your life? Now, I understand. We're at church. I get it. You're a religious person. You're a faithful person. You're here on a Sunday morning after a huge meal on a Saturday night. So I understand the sacrifice. But you're here. And so if I ask you, what is the shape of your life? I'm sure all of you will say and should say, Jesus, my life is cruciform. Of course, I'm a follower of Christ. It's shaped by Jesus Christ. But is it true? Is it true? Now, Jesus gives us a test right in our passage. He gives us a test, and if you use it, you will know if your life is cruciform and to what degree it is cruciform, to what degree it conforms to Christ. Now, look at verse 38. Verse 38. Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are you ashamed of Jesus and his words? Now, do you know what the right answer is? Yes, that's the right answer. Because none of us are completely accepting of everything Jesus has said. Because we brought our whole identities to him, because we brought our lives that were shaped by other things, our parents and money and pleasure and safety, all those things, we brought it to him and we got converted. If you're truly converted, now Jesus is reshaping you. And there are edges, there are bits that, that need to be polished and, and gotten rid of. When you think about Jesus' words, which words are you ashamed of? Which words make you uncomfortable? Which words are you are not printing on your Christmas cards and sending out to your friends or putting on your, on your fridge, right? What are the things that you naturally avoid or you just don't feel comfortable? You wish Jesus hadn't said that. What are those things? Because that, if you feel that, you feel that tension in your heart, this will tell you where his shape, the cross shape of his discipleship now pushes on the old identity that you have. You've got to identify that tension. So, for example, some people are very uncomfortable with Jesus' teaching on money. That whole business of giving your stuff away, caring for the poor, being more generous than expected, that's deeply disturbing to some of us. Do you know why? Because we live for money. How about sexual ethics? When Jesus talks about singleness, celibate singleness, or when he talks about marriage, faithfulness in marriage, fidelity to your spouse, does that make you feel uncomfortable? It may because you may be living for sexual pleasure. Or maybe you've created your own sexual identity. Or your own gender identity. And here comes Jesus. And he says, male and female, he created them. Does that offend you? Does it make you feel ashamed of Jesus and his words? There's something of your old identity that is still left there. And so what Jesus is doing, when he's pushing you to consider his words, 
what he's doing is he's taken the cross, the shape of the cross, and now he's forcing it on you. He's forcing it on your life. And he's actually wanting to conform everything in your life to that shape of the cross, to who he thinks you are as his disciple. It's like cookie dough, right? You take that form, you press it down. Whatever is in is in, whatever is out is out, right? And then you put it in the oven. Then you suffer. Then you hurt, right? Because now Jesus is reshaping you. That, that was not your original shape. But now Jesus is going to reshape you. Your life is going to be cruciform. And it comes through that cutting and pressing. And you feeling ashamed. And you feeling uncomfortable. And yet then you come into Jesus and say, this doesn't make sense to me, but I will submit to you. And maybe you're ashamed because you don't, want, you don't know what other people will think of you. Maybe you really do believe in the Christian sexual ethics. But you know everybody at work doesn't. Are you ashamed of Jesus' words? Are you ashamed of him? Maybe the old shape of your life is built in recognition and praise of other people and how other people see you, their respect and your reputation. See, anytime there's tension between what Jesus says and, and, and how, how readily you receive that, how much shame you feel, that tells you where the new identity is pressing onto your old identity. You're going to suffer just like a cookie in the oven. You're going to have to suffer because it's not easy to remake you. It's not easy for Jesus to put you in a different shape, but he's going to do it. He's not going to give up on you. You're going to be a cookie in the end, so don't worry about that. Now, look at the paradox he, he gives us. I mean, I wish I had more time. This, 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 this thing. I love your encouragement, but we do need to be done at some point. But verses 35 through 37, look at, look at what Jesus does by, by turning it upside down. And yet, this is so true. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now the word soul and life is the same word in Greek. He's talking about identity. He's talking about who you really are. He's talking about the self. If you live for yourself, you will destroy yourself. That's what Jesus says. And that's very true. And that's verifiable by our experience. Anybody who holds on to who they think they are, who wants to define themselves by their own, in their own terms, be who they want to be, will never get there, and they will be destroyed by their own ambition. That's what happens every day. And Jesus says, if you give up your identity, you stop being who you think you should be, you will actually find yourself. If you give up on these things that shape your life, you'll actually find those real things that you need. C.S. Lewis says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. 
Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. The paradox of the gospel is that once you give up your pursuit of safety, once you say, I'm not, I don't want to keep myself safe anymore, and you commit yourself to Christ, guess what? You gain even greater safety. He's going to keep you safe. You gain greater stability. You, are, you, don't, you no, don't need to worry about your safety anymore. Amen. When you give up your freedom by embracing the yoke of Christ and the narrowness of his law, guess what you get? Freedom. You get freedom, and you realize, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to be going. Now I can move faster. If you give up, give up your, your pursuit of money, guess what you get? Wealth. I mean, Jesus says we are his co-heirs. Do you know what Jesus has? Everything. Jesus has everything. That's what you have now in Christ. When you give up on your own pursuit of pleasure and joy, and you submit yourself to Christ, what do you get? You get unspeakable joy. You know, I mean, this is all scripture, right? I mean, Jesus promises those things, but those promises are predicated on our giving up pursuit of those things. And you can't give up on joy so you can get joy. No, no, no. You can give up on joy so you can get Jesus, and with Jesus, you get even greater joy. You can give up on trying to to right the wrongs and, 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 and pay back for your grievance and submit to Jesus. And get, guess what you get? You get vindication. You get vindication. You're actually now fully affirmed, fully justified in him. I mean, these are amazing things that Christians know. And the only way you know that is by giving up your life and taking up your cross and following him and submitting yourself to this cruciform life. I'll end with this very briefly because it's in our text and I need to cover that. It's important and it's very encouraging. Verse 1 that I think belongs in this passage, 9-1 I think belongs in this section. Jesus said, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about the second coming. I think what he's talking about is he's saying, you've just heard me tell you you must give up yourself. You've just heard me tell you you must die to yourself. You've just heard me talk about the cross. You've just heard me challenge, and challenge you to not hold on to your identity, but, but give it up. He's saying, all we've talked about is loss now. But guess what? I'm going to give you glimpses of gain. He's saying that you will see glory. And by the way, I think there are many cases in which that glory came. The next one is transfiguration. And John and James see it. They see the glory of God on Jesus, on his face. The brightness of God's glory. What is that? This is the kingdom of God coming in power. Now, not completely yet, but they get a glimpse of that. Jesus has called them to the cross, and now Jesus is showing them the resurrection. And he's going to do that again and again. We see that, of course, in the resurrection. We see that 
at Pentecost and the coming of, of the Holy Spirit, we see that in the miracles, all those things are happening to remind us that, yes, Jesus calls us to the cross. It's a cruciform life. But he will not leave you discouraged. He will show you the glimpses of glory. And he will show you the power of the kingdom. And so every time you, those of you safety freaks, right, who gave up safety and went to Jesus, and every time you think, I think I'm safer with Jesus now than I was when I was trying to keep myself safe. That's Jesus giving you kingdom with power and reminding you, yes, you're right. You see it. Those of you who, who've given up on pursuing your own pleasure and you have those moments where there's pleasure beyond anything you had dreamed of, even now, I'm talking about now, then you say, oh, that's the kingdom of God and power. There are all of us here who are believers. Anybody who's a believer here, you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it's come in power, with power. Because you see those glimpses. Because we not only live in the life of the cross, we're also living in the life of the empty tomb. Jesus will return, and everything will be true. Everything will be made right. But until then, he does not leave you without reminders of his glory and his power.